Clonads, I am your friendly neighborhood host, Zach Joyner. I uh, wanted to kind of pop in a couple of, for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to kind of apologize. If you were a fan of this show, we've been on an extended hiatus for a while. A couple of reasons for that. One, um, Greg and I have uh, been busy, and uh, they're, kind of, they're kind of related. Greg's been uh, doing a lot of work lately, and um, we just haven't been able to get these episodes out. And secondly, um, well, I got married, and... I got um, found out that I'm having a baby, so I've been really focusing on uh, getting the family situation settled, and as such, it's kind of uh, left a little bit, well, not a little bit, significantly less time to work on these shows. But uh, I am excited that we are getting back on track now, that uh, all the wedding stuff and all the craziness that's been uh, surrounding my life for the last few uh, months has uh, kind of subsided. So, here's the good news. One, you're going to get an episode with uh, Greg Wiseman and Jennifer L. Anderson in this episode. And two, we've already got the next episode with the pros already recorded, as well as the fan panel uh, that will be preceding this next episode. So we're really excited um, to have uh, this episode and the following episode already in the can. And um, we will be releasing those fairly soon to you. Uh, I won't give you an exact date as to when we'll be releasing our next episode, but it'll be fairly soon. So we're very excited about that, and I just want to kind of uh, give everybody a shout. So, with all that being said, let's uh, move on to the next episode, episode 9 of Spectacular Radio. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead. Try. Welcome back to the Spectacular Radio. I am uh, the webmaster of spy-dude.com and executive producer of the show, Zach Joyner. And I am joined, as always, by Mr. Greg Wyshansky, who's going to introduce our the rest of our panel. Hi. We've got Samuel joining us from England. Hello. Um, it's, it's kind of dark at the moment, but it's okay. I'll survive, I hope. <laughs> It's only 12 o'clock at night, it's okay. Yeah, it's alright, it's not like you're calling me at 5 in the morning, which some of you, <laughs> you do. <laughs> and also joining us is, is, as usual, the lovely Jennifer L. Anderson, the production assistant on Season 1 and the talent coordinator on Season 2. Hi! And the uh, supervising producer and story editor of the show, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hello! Yeah, and we're here to talk about competition, the first appearance of Sandman, though not the first appearance of Flint Marco. I love how you introduce the characters before they become supervillains. Thanks. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I think I'll allow Samuel here to take the first question. Oh, alright, the first question. Um, right, I wanted to ask about um, something related to the show, but not entirely about the episode itself, is that the music so one of the most things that interests me, because I do a bit of editing on the side, is that's kind of what I've done as a job, is I've always wondered how um, much of a... I'm trying to the right word here. Um, how much... Um, sorry, I'm, trying to, I'm blanking on the word. It's terrible when that happens, I know. Uh, how much of an input do you have in relation to music? So I know that... Um, I hope I get these names right. Lita, Christopher, and Michael like do the music for the show. But how does that correspond to their... Like, um, how much of an input do you have in the way that they uh, brought the, the thing together. Like, at the start of the episode, you have this great kind of uh, mood piece that really sets the tone for the whole thing. I just wonder, like, how much of an input do you have into getting that all together? I mean, do you, are you hands-off? Is it different animation? I'm just curious from that kind of director standpoint. Vic uh, Crick and I had a lot of input. I mean, I don't want to pretend we wrote any music. We sure as hell didn't. But, um, <laughs> you know, for every episode... Um, we would have a, a music spotting session once we had locked picture. So after we were done editing, um, sometimes even before we had all the final uh, retakes in, we would um, go over to Dynamic Music Partners, um, which is based actually at Lolita Ritmanis' house. Um, and uh, uh, Chris and Michael and Lolita would sit down with Vic and I and we would talk, you know, we would watch the episode um, and talk through what we wanted in each piece there. 
Um, it was a discussion. I'd say that, honestly, as uh, I sort of led, as a producer, led the voice work um, that was done on the show, I think it's fair to say that, that Vic really led the music um, on the show. Um, not that I didn't have input, but really uh, Vic had a much clearer sense of what he was looking for and could speak to it. Um much more effectively than I could. Um, but we would talk through all of this and then we would have a music preview a few weeks later where we would go back over to uh, DMP and uh, Vic and I would again sit down with Lolita, Chris, and Michael and they would play us the show with the music in there. And, and you know, they were just fantastic. Um, I'm not saying we occasionally had notes here and there, um, but for the most part, you know, they gave us everything we asked for and a lot more uh, time in and time out. Um, and, uh, you know, couldn't be more thrilled with the work they did on the show in general. And there's certain episodes specifically that are just really phenomenal. Um, and then, you know, after the preview, um, a few weeks after that, we would mix the show where we're, um, or those who, of your audience who aren't quite aware of the post-production process, this is about a mix, a sound mix is where you balance the sound effects, the dialogue, the music, the Foley effects, and all that stuff together. You get the final version, mixed version of the sound that you get on television. A lot of things you have to keep in mind. Obviously, you want to make sure that dialogue isn't buried by either music or sound effects. And sometimes we make little adjustments in the music um, there at the mix session. Move it up a little bit, move it back. Our mixes for Spider-Man were done at Advantage Audio. Um, and uh, it was a sort of a great uh, um, process. Uh, the mix is actually... I think probably my one of my two favorite pieces of the entire production process. The yeah, other is recording the voices, but the mix in some ways is even better because it's where everything finally comes together and you get to see the finished product and hear the finished product in the way you want it to be. And Jen, yeah. you sat in on those, didn't you? Not on the not on the final. Uh, I was there for the the voice actors, um, but not for the the mixes and stuff. I only got to see one, and that was the last one that they did. Because uh, it's like I think yeah, one of the things we invited everybody to the last. Yeah, one. yeah, it was, <laughs> it, was, it was our little goodbye party thing. It was the last one they did, yeah. and uh, that was fun. Well, no, because I mean, one of the things I love about it, like Spectacular, I was watching it early just to kind of get a feel for it, and I remember like one of the things that really struck me was how all the music. There were plenty of great scenes where there was just, it was Atmos, it was just like letting the characters, letting the dialogue kind of set the tone. And while I love the 90s show, it was very uh, heavy in its uh, use of select compositions. And I think, it, and I think that's one of the things that make this show uh, stand out, is the fact that, um, well, compared to older Marvel stuff, they're really, it's a bit more diverse. It's, it's interesting as well, considering that I know that the composers, for the most part, had worked on DC stuff not just uh, Marvel, so it's kind of interesting to kind of get there a different, uh, get, it, yeah, get a different style across, and I suppose. To me, the whole DC-Marvel distinction is a little silly. Um, you know, a show is a show, um, and uh, each show has its own individual needs, whether you're comparing two shows that both happen to feature DC characters or a show that features Marvel versus a show that features DC. Each show has its own needs, its own uses, sort of looking at it, certainly from a musical standpoint, and going, wow, these were really DC composers, and now they're doing a Marvel show. That's <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, you know, um, what they are, of course, is incredibly talented composers, um, able to handle a wide variety of types of shows. Um, but, you know, if you compare Young Justice, for example, to Justice League Unlimited, um, those are shows with very, very different scores um, and and theories behind the scoring, and yet they're both DC shows. So, um, 
you know, they, they don't, they don't have anything in common other than the fact of, yeah, you, you can see Batman in both, but, um, <laughs> but from a scoring standpoint, you know, you're not, there's really no point in sort of thinking in, in those sort of DC Marvel terms. And certainly even from a writing standpoint, other than again, which characters we get to use or not use, we didn't think in terms of, oh, well, this is a Marvel show, so that means it's got to be like this versus this is a DC show, so that means it's got to be like this. None of that thinking went into any of this. We're just trying to make the best Spider-Man show we could make. And you succeeded. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> One thing, though, that is true, and this is a budgetary issue to some extent, and also a shift in the way music is scored now versus how it used to be scored, um, all our episodes on Spider-Man were fully scored, original scores. Now, that's not to say they didn't reuse motifs and themes that were established in previous episodes, because, of course, they did. But the point is is that all the music was created originally for that episode. If I could contrast that um, with Gargoyles um, years earlier, where we had a much more limited budget, um, for scoring. And so we made tremendous use of Mark Perlman, our music editor, who would take the cues, literally take cues from previous episodes and apply them to new situations and new episodes with tremendous ability and seamlessly so that it always felt like an original score. Um, again, another advantage we had on Gargoyles is that that was a full orchestra. Um, and Spider-Man did not have the benefit of a full orchestra. Almost every uh, instrument, with one exception that I'll get to in a second, um, was uh, synthetically created. Um, so one of the reasons that we can afford to score entire episodes in the quote-unquote modern day, as opposed to only scoring three or four episodes and then using that scoring as a library to edit to picture is because we no longer employ orchestras most of the time. Instead, what we're doing is getting electronic music. Now, the one exception on Spider-Man, because both uh, Dynamic Music Partners and Vic Cook and myself, we all felt this was important, was the electric guitar. Um, <laughs> our version of Spider-Man um, was very guitar-heavy, and Greg Herzenach, um was our guitarist for the show, and so his music uh, on the show is live, and uh, probably, I'm going to say every episode, maybe almost every episode, Greg contributed to that, um, and because we felt that the guitaring was such an integral part of uh, our scoring uh, for that show that um, we wanted uh, a guitar player there. And that was DMP's idea um, to include Greg and uh, to get uh, live guitar music into the score as opposed to just recreating the sound of the guitar electronically. But almost every other instrument was created electronically as opposed to, again, a show back in the Batman, the animated series years or the Gargoyles years when those were almost always done by orchestras of varying sizes. Some were small orchestras, some were much larger, but um, because you're employing so many musicians, you can only afford to do a handful of episodes, and then you create a library from those musical cues, and you ferment on your editing music. So when you compare the 90s show, and I have the 90s Spider-Man show, and I have no inside knowledge of what they did scoring on that or not, but my guess is is that if you're rehearing a number of cues over and over again, then that's probably why. That they only scored a handful of episodes and then they had to use that handful of episodes and break up the cues in it and edit the music to the new the you know, the subsequent episodes because from a budgetary standpoint they couldn't afford to score every episode to picture. No, that sounds um Pretty much, like I think, I think it was only they did a couple with um, Suki Levy, I believe that's how you pronounce the name. I apologise if um, they ever hear it. But um, I found it kind of interesting. You have mentioned there's a lot of guitar in Spidey because I think that I think a lot of um, 
uh, other shows get as well. There was actually a uh, radio drama production done in the UK during the 90s, and uh, one of the composers on that was uh, Brian May of Queen. So there was a lot of guitar in that um, little short uh, radio drama, and it's kind of interesting to think that that, that kind of sound and style is heavily uh, embossed in Spider-Man's uh, <coughs> legacy. But it, I think it fits. I think it's certainly uh, the sort of instrument you can imagine... I don't know. I don't know if you can imagine Peter being a rock star. It's more like uh, Gwen these days, it seems. But um, it's, it's certainly something that kind of fits the tone of the character. I think. Okay. For us, it had more to do with movement. Um, we just wanted uh, a Spider-Man. I know I've said this on this podcast over and over again, but we wanted a Spider-Man that moves um, and moved with energy and moved with enthusiasm. That Spider-Man was this huge relief for Peter. And so one of the things we talked about early on with the music, um, and one of these days we should really pull in um, uh, DMP or one of these podcasts uh, to talk about the music themselves. Love to, yeah. But, um, but one of the but one of the things that we talked about in the very early going, um, before any scoring began, was that you know I wanted the sense of freedom um, that like you know 60s rock guitar um, you know like the kind of score you'd have watching in a old you know 1972 surfing documentary where you're just watching the surfing and the guitars playing and you just look at that guy on the surfboard and you go that guy feels free and so it was that kind of energy that uh, that um, that we want out of the guitar songs like you know um, crazy like a Mercury you know stuff like that that would give us the kind of energy that we uh, and that feeling of freedom and that feeling of keen spirit so to speak um, and relief that we were specifically looking for and um, DMP took those thoughts that Vic and I have and translated that into a guitar heavy score that were that in essence from their point of view required an actual guitarist as opposed to synth. Um, I don't disagree, but that was their call and we just agreed to it because they were right. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so I think that that kind of energy is really what we were looking for even from the from day one. Moving on to story, I thought Sandman was terrific on this show. He's never really been one of my favorites in the comics, and I'll admit, before this show came out, Spider-Man 3 kind of gave me a bad taste in regards to Sandman, but I loved him here, and he felt like if Peter's the everyman superhero, Sandman's the everyman supervillain. Uh, yeah, I think that I think that works. I mean, in even a more blue-collar sense. I mean, Peter Parker is every man but he's the sort of smart kid who is picked on in school and and is able now finally to release and fight back um sandman is sort of the blue collar guy who uh as a villain who is you know not specifically out to hurt anybody not specifically uh out to cause any pain per se um until he gets riled up but really just wants the money you know, he's got it in his head that um, crime pays. He's got no evidence of this, to be honest. <laughs> he's been <laughs> remarkably unsuccessful as long as we've known Flint Marco. Um, and yet he's got it in his head that crime pays. And, it, and if he could just get that one big score, and, and throughout both seasons he talks a lot about, you know, uh, the big score that he wants, you know, the jewels or the cash or whatever that he's going to get. And which will, uh, you know, allow him to frankly stop being a thief. Because it's not like he gets off on the thievery itself. He, it's not, he's not in it for the adventure. He's not in it for the excitement. He's literally just in it for the money. Um, because he, now what he'd do with that money is another damn good question. I don't know that he's thought that far ahead. <laughs> he was going to buy an island to become that island. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, if you could just get that money and have, you know, be on Easy Street, 
And that's all he really cares about. He doesn't care about vengeance. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. He just wants that picture in his head of, yeah, sipping a pina colada on a beach even before he became the beach. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, uh, Bender's big score. (laughs) Anyway, and this goes out to both Greg and Jen. I mean, John DiMaggio did such a great job there. I mean, what was it like working with him and Jen? You were the um, talent coordinator. I'm sure you had some fun with him in the booth. Or uh, He's one of the funniest human beings I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, he, he's a master of improv and uh, and so in, uh, he was always fun to just talk to. Um, but, uh, you know, you put, he, he could take the whole booth down, get them all laughing, but he was very good at what he did. So Yeah, and uh, he worked very blue. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> nice. A lot of, a lot of inappropriate... <laughs> um, uh, See, that's stuff going on there that's just cracking so. <laughs> every, everybody up um, and yeah he's incredibly funny but you know he's also I and he is great at improv he's also incredibly professional oh yeah um, and and incredibly versatile um, you know in this episode you have these great scenes with Hammerhead and uh, and uh, Flint Marco talking to each other and of course John plays both those characters, and there's never a moment when you're like sitting there going, "Yeah, but that's the same guy." I mean, even when you know it and you're watching the show, you don't think that way. They're very distinct personalities that he's created, and very distinct voices. Um, and you know, you could close your eyes and listen to the two characters talk, and you never have a question which one was Sandman and which one was Hammerhead. Loved Hammerhead. Absolutely, yeah, it's terrific. Uh, Hammerhead was uh, was one of those characters in the comics that was kind of kind of cheesy because you knew he was just based off that you know 1930s mobster deal, but in in this show he just is seamlessly integrated into the universe. He doesn't come off as cheesy. He comes off as as a legitimate you know, yeah he's a he's a tough guy, but he's he's definitely uh, an enforcer you know. So uh, I really enjoyed his performance in this episode in both characters. Yeah, you know, Hammerhead was a lot of fun for us, and, you know, you want to set that balance between capturing that bit of 30s gangster glam, for lack of a better term, um, uh-huh. that goes with the character, uh, and uh, a bit of that New York uh, feel to it. Uh, but the idea was that, you know, he was working for uh, the big man, and he was the big man's representative, through, uh, you know, the first, certainly all the first season, um, and uh, and at least the, a little chunk of season two, um, and so we wanted him to be competent. We didn't want him to be laughable, um, but you know, we gave him things like, you know, the chauffeur limo. We gave him a, a chauffeur that I think was fascinating to all of us, uh, in in part because he never speaks. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I was really hoping that one day she would speak and I got to be the voice. That was my hope. I loved, I loved the chauffeur. (laughs) But I mean, I think one of the things that made her intriguing and mysterious was because she didn't speak. And that's a lesson again, that I actually, I've learned uh, over and over again, which is sometimes, you know, you have a character who, for whatever reason is mute, like we did claw um, uh, in gargoyles. And uh, that character becomes very interesting because here she isn't saying anything. Um, we did that on a couple characters in uh, in uh, Spectacular Spider-Man. There was uh, Hammerhead Chauffeur, but there was also Emily Osborne. Yeah, uh, I was about to, I was about to yeah. create an intrigue. And we had more specific plans for Emily, but we really also liked um, the chauffeur quite yeah, a bit. She was awesome, and hey, Jen, she has the same a similar mole above her lip. I mean, you could work it. <laughs> <laughs> See, the thing about voices is you don't actually have to look like the character. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's that's you know sometimes it comes through. Yeah. <laughs> look, at, look at Genie and Aladdin. You know? <laughs> there you go. 
So yes, and um, but yeah, back to um, John DiMaggio. This is a story that I want you to share here, Jen. He told a funny story a few months back about how he was ba- babysitting uh, Kelly Hu's oh, dog yeah. during a recording. He, he he was late to only one recording was he ever late to, and uh, Kelly Hu used to always bring in her Chihuahua Mushu. Uh, and Mushu had dog tags on, so she couldn't be in the booth with Kelly Hu at the time uh, of recording. So um, I got stuck with Mushu a lot. Good dog. But uh, when uh, DiMaggio showed up late, I gave him Mushu duty. Uh, you're going to have to wait <laughs> out here till they're ready for you. Here's your dog. <laughs> nice. And I, I thought I was punishing him. But when I came back out to tell him he could go into the booth, he and Mushu had bonded and he had created a whole song about the big man and the little dog and was singing it to Mushu, who was on his shoulders. So, (laughs) you know, if he ever comes on the show one of these days, we're going to have to have him sing Big Man and Little Dog. (laughs) I guarantee you he will make it up right then and there and just have a full song for you. Now I'm more than ever to get him on here for uh, season two for first steps. <laughs> there you go. Very good. Yeah, so um, you introduced another character in this episode, Glory Grant, and I thought you did a great job with her. I mean, she wasn't someone I was expecting to see, but at the same time, I should have because you got Coach Smith in there. I mean, anyone is expected at this point except for someone who's not on the Spider-Man license. Uh, yeah, I mean, I always liked Glory. Um, you know, we had Betty as uh, Jones' assistant, and Glory, of course, was his second assistant, so we didn't really need her in that slot. But we always needed um, uh, high school students and diversity, and so it was great to have her in there, and we thought her relationship with with Kenny Kong um, was just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew Casino and Chris Summer playing off each other was always a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, so, you know, we were always trying to bring in as many characters from the canon as we could, uh, as long as we were doing it organically. And, and that was a key. I mean, you mentioned earlier that we had introduced Flint Marco, uh, in episode one, and, um, we tried to introduce a lot of the villains and, in sort of soft ways in earlier episodes from when they finally appeared. Um, but we always tried to do it in an organic fashion so that it, so that, uh, it all seemed very natural and, and real and not sort of like, okay, here's an Easter egg for the fans, you know, with a big billboard over it saying Easter egg, Easter egg, Easter egg, you know, kind of mm-hmm. thing. We'd, we'd rather just put it in there, slide it in make an organic sort of play and uh and then you know for those who uh know these characters it's a, it is a bonus for them but for those for whom they're meeting Glory Grant for the first time you know they're just meeting another high school kid and they don't need the uh they need don't need to feel like there's something they don't know when in mm-hmm. fact they're from our point of view from the point of view of our series there isn't um, you know, we don't want to create unnecessary confusion. You know, there are times when we have mysteries in the show, but I don't want something like who's Glory Grant suddenly to become a mystery. There's no mystery <laughs> Who is Glory Grant? She's the Green, Eleven. She's the Green Goblin, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> a- absolutely. Yeah, she is the Green Goblin. Um, and something that's near and dear to my heart is football, because well, I'm from Texas, and it's our second religion, so. Uh, the use of football in this episode, I thought, was very was a lot of fun, and kind of kind of going going to the thought process of bringing in sports because Peter Parker, you, you always saw Flash as the big football star, but you really never actually saw much on the like in terms of his on the field or even tryouts. So, uh, what, what was your thought process going into that? Well, it wasn't that different from our thought process on introducing the Shakespearean subplot in season two. You know, in other words, we're trying to always make um, life seem real and seem ongoing. And so, you know, the subplot of what's going on with the football team um, was a big deal um, throughout season one and even through the beginning of uh, season two with repercussions coming later in the season. So, you know, we had these ongoing subplots about 
what's going on with the football team. So who's making the team, who isn't making a team, who's on the team, who's not on the team. Um, and plus, you know, it's just a lot of fun to have a guy with Spider-Man's powers trying out for the football team and trying to look good enough to make the team and not so good that people go, hey, that kid's got Spider-Man powers, you know. Um, right. And, uh, you know, Peter still wasn't a big guy. You know, one of the decisions we made early on is that, I'm um, sure you take his uh, bulky, you know, long sleeve right. and short sleeve T-shirts off and put him in that sleek uh, um, Spider-Man costume, and you can see that he's got muscles, but he's not a, he's not this huge ripped guy like the '90s show version was. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know he's a 16 year old kid, and so he's not that tall. Certainly not as tall as Flash. Spider-Man, you know, didn't automatically you know gaining spider powers didn't automatically make him taller. Um, and it didn't particularly broaden his shoulders. It just, you know, gave him sort of this muscle quality. And then all the, frankly, I think a lot of all that swinging around the city and fighting is what, you know, gives him the strength. It's that he's using these muscles. You know, the spider powers gives him the potential, but it's the way he's constantly exercising it that, it, that gives him the real strength that he's got um, and all that you know, flexibility and mobility. So, you know, obviously he's going to do well on the gridiron, but how well does he want to do? And ultimately, in in the end, you know, he cares about Harry. He may have lost his way for a little bit mid-episode, particularly when, you know, characters like Liz Allen are sort of playing up to him. Um, But, uh, you know, in the end, he doesn't really want the commitment of being a uh, of being a football player on the team. The fact is he's not no longer a photographer for the school paper. He just doesn't have time for that kind of thing. Between having to work for the Bugle, working uh, as he was for a little while at, uh, at the university, um, being Spider-Man and then trying to live his life, that's way enough. So, you know, if he sits back and thinks about it at all, he doesn't really want to be on that football team. And the main reason he tried out, obviously, was to protect Harry, not to show Harry up. And right. um, once that sort of clicks in and he sort of works through the distraction of his hormones, um, you know, he obviously blows the gig on purpose. But it's tough for him because it was a lot of fun to dodge... Uh, Kenny Kong, as opposed to let Kenny tackle him. Um, <laughs> right. You know, yeah. When you didn't have to. Right. It's all about doing the right thing with Peter, and that's that's something that I've always appreciated about this about this show is that you always he might lose his way for you know a scene or or three, but but he'll always just because that's that's what Spider Man is, he'll always find his way back to, to what the core of the character is, which is doing the right thing. Uh and you you mentioned him, you know, being built like a sixteen year old. That's one thing I always appreciated with you guys uh, on Spectacular and, and really the other instance that I saw it was uh, in the Ultimate Spider Man comic, uh when they uh first were beginning, that you really did have Peter look like a sixteen year old and he didn't look like you know, like you say, the '90s Spider-Man cartoon where he looked like he was a linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers or something. So, well, to be fair, though, we were doing a different era. Like, in other words, right. um, our character was 16 years old, so he looked like a 16-year-old. I, I, I'm not that familiar with the '90s uh, Spider-Man show. Um, I, I will admit that I've seen very little of it, but my impression is is that. This was the Peter in that show was playing at at least a college student or maybe he, even a grad was. student yeah. or a photographer for the Bugle. I'm not even sure he was in school. I can't remember. Um, uh, but he yeah, certainly he was, he wasn't was, yes. a high school student. You know, he wasn't a 16-year-old. So to be fair to them, they weren't trying to do that. But right. to me, even so, part of the fun of Spider-Man is that life movable form. Um, 
yes, he's got spider strength. We all know that. He can do some incredible things with it. But I don't think of strength as his primary attribute. This guy's not Superman, you know. Um, and strength is, is just an aspect of what he can do, the proportional strength of the spider. I get all that. But um, the notion of making him sort of a big, bulky guy, um, you know, so that in essence... Spider-Man has the same physique as Captain America, who has the same physique as Mr. Fantastic, who has the same physique as pretty much every male character there, except someone like Hulk or Thing, you know. Um, That creates a sort of generic feel to to superheroes that I don't think that they should have. Um, You want to find what's unique about Peter unique about Spidey and play to that and for us yes obviously we were doing a high school Peter so yeah he's 16 but it's also even beyond that still comes back to the very first thing that we said which is that Spider-Man has to move and so all those muscles would get in the way of that so what you want is someone who's muscly like a gymnast um not muscly like a football player. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because in the 90s show, he was more jacked than Flash, but Flash would still call him Puny Parker. <laughs> really? <laughs> anyway, and this is one for both of you, especially Jen. I understand that some of the post-production was fun on this. It was very interesting angles in the lab when Sandman was being created. Oh, with the with his, yeah, they... He was a little too naked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and not only naked, but a little too Ken. <laughs> yes. yes, he was as He's anatomically a- correct as a Ken doll. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it is a kid's show, right? You know, there's, certain, there's certain things. Some little girl sitting there going, what's that? No, you don't want that to happen. Yeah, well, they well, we, were, we were very careful in the storyboards to uh, make sure, tried to be anyway, that we were only, you know, he, he had to be naked in a theoretical sense. But obviously, we had no interest in showing um, Flint Marco's junk on the air. Um, <laughs> and uh, and even, if, even should we be allowed to, which, of course, we wouldn't have been allowed to, so we were very careful to to shoot it from angles where we weren't seeing um, his butt crack or seeing where his genitals would be. Um, and in the storyboard, unfortunately, some of the animation came back and they're shooting from, and they adjusted it just enough where they moved the foreground element just enough that you can see where his, you know, crotch would be. And not that they drew in the genitals, they didn't, but... yeah. Then what you're seeing is okay. This guy just doesn't have any, and that's as <laughs> creepy as uh, as as anything. So you know, we had to make a lot of adjustments. We called a bunch of retakes. I cursed a lot. Um, we, uh, that was kind of normal, we though. Cut shots out and and um, and created foreground elements. We did every trick in the book so that you know, on the one hand. Of course, the guy um, would be uh, naked because you wouldn't perform the thing where you're injecting this armor into him, which was theoretically what this experiment was supposed to achieve, um, the subdermal armor, um, and, you know, and say, okay, but we're going to insert it under your underwear, you know, kind of thing. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. So you had to be naked in the theoretical sense, but we didn't want to show anything. We wouldn't have gotten away with showing anything. So we just had to, to do all this sort of fancy footwork to make sure that we weren't seeing these areas that um, that you didn't want to see. We'll just be thankful that Quake is uh, not as popular as Sandman, because that could have been even worse if you used that kind of character, right? <laughs> but... Um, to get um, to ask a question about kind of like the football stuff, one of the things that um, I really liked about the whole football scene was how Peter w- was quite okay with using his powers 
in like in that sense because if it was like let's say the old comics or maybe other shows he would have been like I can't use my powers they might figure out that it's I'm Spider-Man so he'd like just he'd just let them do whatever and I like that this Peter at least this version of Peter anyway um isn't like he's not so stupid as just do his powers in whatever but I like that he's willing to kind of play around with it and as long as the situation kind of fits the scenario he's willing to kind of use them to his advantage which I think is um which I think makes it a bit more interesting really because thinking that everyone yeah. will figure out immediately who he is is a little bit uh paranoid if you ask me I think he used his powers um in a kind of involuntary sense, in the sense that, yeah, his spider sense goes off, so he knows the guy is right behind him about to tackle him, so he knows when to jump. But he wasn't using his full spidey leaping ability to jump, you know, because then he could have jumped up to the top of the goalpost. Um, instead, he just moves at just the right moment so that instead of tackling Peter, Kenny gets a face full of, of turf. Um, or... He's reaching out to the football, and that natural adhesive ability that he has allows him to take a pass that, that he otherwise might not have been able to to reach. And just just by touching the ball at all, he's able to sort of pull it in. And, and from the point of view of anyone looking, it's a pretty amazing catch, but it's not a superhuman catch. From the point of view of him dodging Kenny's tackle, it's, a, it's impressive, but again, it's not superhuman. So that the coach is sitting there going, wow, that, that Parker kid, he's pretty good, you know. Um, but he isn't sitting there going, holy shit, this kid's a freak. You know, it's surprising that a kid that size is doing as well as he is. But he's not performing in such a way that suddenly everyone who's watching is going, oh, my God, could that guy be Spider-Man? And I don't even think there was a lot of conscious thought from Peter's standpoint, to be honest. Um, it wasn't so much him saying, oh, I got to be careful. Uh, I mean, there were moments like that, but, um, you know, I, I don't think it was him going, well, I'm going to go ahead and use my spider powers. He just did it. Um, and again, part of that was him getting the sort of, uh, hormonal encouragement from Liz and to a lesser extent from Gwen. Um, because Peter's a, a kid who um, is mad for the girls. <laughs> um, so, um, but aren't we all at that age? <laughs> well, I don't know about all, but I certainly was. So, um, yeah, yeah. any little so bit of positive so <laughs> nice. any little bit of positive attention that that you know I got from any. Uh, female was always something that would encourage me in that direction <laughs> to get more of fame. Um, so, and, and again, I, I've probably said this before, but one of the things I pitched to, that got me the job was, was stating, uh, that Peter Parker was madly, passionately in love with whatever girl happened to be standing in front of him at any given moment. <laughs> and this is still early enough on in the series, but that's true. Now, as time passes, his feelings for Gwen in particular become much stronger, and that changes as he matures. But when we first meet Peter, this is still a Peter who thinks that, you know, Sally is a viable, um, you know, candidate to be his girlfriend, and Liz, and, and, uh, and you know, one person he's not paying any attention to because she's his best friend is Gwen. Um, but, you know, at this stage, he, he could easily be swayed to almost any um, attractive young lady, Betty, whoever. And it was really well done. And moving on to a more personal note, but we'll bring it back to the show very soon. I mean, we all recently met up. Well, Greg, Jen, and I, not Zach and Sam, we all met up at Convergence in June, and we had a, uh, it was, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of Gargoyles, and if Marina Sirtis is here right now, she'd be correcting all of us, particularly Zach, it's, it, no, what we play in England is called football, you stupid American, or something like that, but. (laughs) I'll I'll let you guys go, it's all right. (laughs) I can survive. 
Yeah, she's a major soccer fan, football, whatever. But um, and we, and uh, we. By the way, she's also a major American football fan. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, she. There are a lot tennis, football. She likes sports. Football, yeah, she likes sports. And she likes Game of Thrones. We talked Game of Thrones, but anyway, and anyway, Convergence was the 20th anniversary of Gargoyles, and it was sort of a, um, sort of, a, and they did the thing that we used to do at the gatherings. They did the radio plays, and um, this comes back to um, I appeared in the in the radio play as myself, both in the 2009 radio play and this one, and this was the character that sort of appeared. At least Harry mentioned him, and uh, when he was having lunch with his new friends and Greg this is our okay. story <laughs> yeah no no this is Greg Wiseman has to sit there and tell the epic story of the time that that uh, Bashansky tried to get him to not leave leave uh, was it New York that he was leaving from it was New York yeah we were trying to it was New York he, he tried to keep him in New York for a little while longer we were, Greg, no, we were trying to get to look I don't think you I don't think he was trying I think you're giving him too much credit yeah that's if, yeah. <laughs> if he had actually been trying this wouldn't be as funny a story frankly um, <laughs> in my defense uh, before we start this is days before GPS, and I had these really bad map quest directions, and there's a lot of construction going on, and I will defend myself periodically throughout this, but go on, Greg, take it away. <laughs> oh, <whatever. laughs> uh, we used to do uh, uh, these gargoyles conventions on an annual basis, what we called the Gathering of the Gargoyles, um, and uh, what year was, was the New York one? I, I, mean, I mean, the third New York, this particular one. 2003. 2003. So uh, we had had a great con, and, and uh, Greg had been the uh, con chair or co-con chair, I can't remember con now, um, uh, of the convention. And um, and his last duty, as far as I was concerned anyway, was to drive me to the airport so that I could leave at the end of the convention. And so, you know, I get in the car and Greg and I are chatting about geek stuff. I don't really remember what specifically we were talking about, but it was a nice conversation. So we were chatting for a while and I wasn't really paying attention to where we were going. Um, this is for a couple reasons. One, although I lived in New York for a few years, um, I never drove, I didn't have a car, so I never drove to the airport. I always took the subway, occasionally would take a cab um, back from the airport but um, going to the airport, I almost always took a subway, so I had no real idea how to get there myself. Um, and I took it for granted that Greg did. <laughs> um, this was my first mistake. Um, so we're driving along, talking about whatever, and, and, and we've been on the road for half hour to 45 minutes, and suddenly we passed the hotel the hotel that we had stayed in where the convention had been after being on the road for a half hour to 45 minutes. So I noticed this first time I've paid any attention to where we are. I noticed this and I say, we just drove past the hotel and he's very apologetic. I mean, he hadn't brought it up earlier because there's um, a lot of construction going on and the direction there's a lot of construction. He got very specific turned around and he couldn't go the way that the direction said to go. So he decided at some point to just start over. Yeah. Um, so he went back to the hotel so he could start from scratch and try again. Well, suddenly I'm realizing that um, perhaps I should be paying closer attention. And I begin, I take the direction, I begin to try to navigate for him. Um, admittedly, I'm the directions weren't that great, so I'm not doing that great a job, but... At one point, we're stopped at a red light, and a van drives by and clips off his driver's side side view mirror. Um, so that was the first accident that we got in on the way to the yeah. airport. First one. And, wait, uh, wait, it gets <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's yeah. more than one. That's plural. Um, yeah. And this is—I I want to be very clear about this. This accident was not Greg's fault at all. He was stopped at a light minding his own business from a vehicular standpoint and a car just a van just came by and clipped him guy got out of the van and very sort of pushy and uh loud and and he says uh he sees the mirror and he goes uh 
uh, here's 20. He pulls out a 20 and just throws, literally throws it at Greg through the window <laughs> and, and says, here, this will cover. We don't have to, we don't have to exchange anything. Now, here is a moment, and, and, you know, this story doesn't necessarily reflect very well on Greg, but it also doesn't reflect very well on me, because I have a moment here as a grown-up where I realize that there's no way 20 bucks is going to cover the cost of replacing that mirror. No way in hell. Um, and, um, and I'm thinking, well, he should say no and exchange insurance information with this guy because it was that guy's complete fault, so Greg shouldn't be on the hook for any of this. Um, but what's also going through my head is I'm not going to make my plane. So selfishly, I just keep my mouth shut. Um, so that's my fault. <laughs> Um, in this, but I do at least take down the guy. It was a, a commercial van, so I took down the name of the company and the license plate number um, so that at least Greg would have some resources should he choose to follow them up later. Um, that was the only sort of positive thing I did at that moment. <laughs> Otherwise, I just left him out there to hang um, with $20 to cover an entire uh, side view mirror. Um, and we continue on, and we uh, managed to get off Manhattan. We're pulling up to this toll bridge, and, and we're running very short on time, and Greg is incredibly apologetic. And so and he is looking at me, apologizing profusely for being so late and for not having everything down here. And he is inching forward, um, and he's inching forward, and I'm like, Greg, Greg, Greg! Because he rear-ends the car at the toll. It was a tap. Oh. It was a tap. <laughs> well, uh, you still, you I know, still I ran know, a vehicle I into somebody's rear end. I know, I know. I know. <laughs> it's just a tap. Hey, there's, no, there's no paint scratch. Let's just go. Okay. So actually, you know, the guy gets out of his car. This time, Greg was completely at fault. Um, the first accident, it was the other guy's fault. This time, it was 100% Greg. The guy was stopped at the toll booth, and Greg just kept driving into him. Now, again, Greg's right. It was just a tap, so um, there was no damage to either car, um, certainly not to the other guy's car, because the other guy got out, looked at his bumper, and said, eh, forget it, and drove off. And then we proceeded through the toll booth and proceeded to then get lost about three or four more times en route what to the airport. What happened there was, by that point I was panicky. I no longer trusted those MapQuest instructions. So I asked, which exit do I get off of to get to LaGuardia? Because I knew it was coming up. And he said, okay, just keep to the left. The exit was on the right. Well, there's so, your first mistake. Uh, yeah. well, we, by this point, but yeah. we eventually get to the airport um, at this point. Um, my flight is scheduled to leave about three minutes after we arrived. Oh, I am fairly furious, A, and B, um, you know, thinking I may get stuck there. So I said to him, you drive in circles until you hear back from me. Um, and so I raced through the airport. For whatever reason, I managed to get through security very quickly and ran to the gate and, and in essence, got to board straight on the plane. And I did make it. I just barely made it. Um, Everyone else had boarded already, but they hadn't shut the doors and I got on. So in the end, the end result of this was not much. (laughs) Um, But what it meant is that years later, six years later, or however many, five years later, when I was right, when I was uh, working on this episode of uh, of Spectacular Spider-Man, and I'm sure most of you are wondering why we're telling this story at all, um, Harry Osborne, when he's having a malt with the gang at the at the local hangout, um, is talking about this chauffeur and how he got into two accidents on the way to the airport, and of course <laughs> that chauffeur was Greg Shansky. Um, no, we don't actually ever see Greg in the show, but 
he is at least referenced in this one episode. He's there in spirit. As the worst yeah. chauffeur in New York. So uh, the first time I watched <laughs> it, I was thinking, wait, well, what, did I hear that right? Did I hear that right? What did he say? Did I hear that right? And I waited until the ep- – and I had to wait like six hours for someone to put the episode up on BitTorrent so I could download it and double-check <laughs> that line <laughs> because I wasn't quite sure if I heard that correctly. And the best part was being in like the editing booth when, it, for, when I first watched it the time through and I'm just giggling to myself. <laughs> And I was like, but Shansky's going to love this. He is just going to be so proud that he has made it into Spider-Man. And I, his, and I was. At the end of the day, I was. I mean, there was... His crowning achievement is getting into two accidents with with Greg Wiseman so he could actually, you know, make a... It's make his a, 15 minutes of fame. He's got it. He earned it. Absolutely. <laughs> and it got better even later because that character was brought back in the 2009 radio play. Harry hired him again to... um slow things down in that radio play and I got yelled at by Sally Avril during all, during all that. Remember, Jen? <laughs> yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Greg, likes, yes. Greg likes to give me the parts where I get to yell at you. Yes, I know. And, and, well, and because then, I know you'll both enjoy it. Yes, <laughs> and then but it all culminated in con- at Convergence where this character became an orderly at Ravencroft and in a scene which I can only... He got fired as a chauffeur. Yes, and in the scene that I can only <laughs> Finally. believe, yeah, believe was uh, written to pander to me. I had dialogue in that scene with Jen here and with Marina Sirtis as Queen Bee from Young Justice, where I was enthralled by her. <laughs> and, <laughs> Wait, and, she was, and he was so enthralled, he forgot his last line. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Did I? Yes, you did. Yeah, <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's even better. <laughs> well, uh, to be fair, you forgot your second to last line because your last line was this impact, which uh, you did. Wait, well, I punched myself impact. in the face, yeah. Yeah, you did the impact, which was great, but you skipped the dialogue that came before the impact. Um, no, 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 I said enthusiastic. it. Yeah. You were so enthusiastic that you skipped right over the actual line. When Queen Bee tells yourself. him to do something, he does it. <laughs> yeah, he does. And, Just my and, Queen Bee. Oh. And to be fair, Marina Sirtis forgot a line also at one point <laughs> during that. <laughs> so at least I'm in the company of a professional. But um, it was great. I got to punch sure. myself in the face and lock Jen in a closet. <laughs> and she fired wow. me. Wow. And she fired me. Not, a, not in that order. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she fired you first, and then you locked her in the closet. Yes, that was a great line. That was great. So, um, but hey, at the so, end of the day, Flash Thompson stood up for me. Maybe the chauffeur wasn't the problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm so, kidding. So, I'm kidding. So, so, Jen, Jen, I have to ask you to do this for me once. Can you fire Bashansky on the show? <laughs> She'll do it glad. <laughs> Bashansky, step into my office. <laughs> get get your go. stuff and get the hell out of here now. You're fired. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's the sound of him running. That's the sound of me clapping. <laughs> well, well, we'll just say you're running against, like, pile or something. All right. <laughs> that was very menacing. That was well done. <laughs> no, that was my favorite line at the entire radio plant. <laughs> Yeah. You're, you're so fired. You're so fired. Yeah. You're so fired. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Zach, we'll be back to making fun of you on the regular podcast later. <laughs> yeah, Zach's, Zach's usually the butt monkey. This time it's me. <laughs> yeah, I, I am normally the butt monkey. Even on my own shows that I, you know, produce and edit and everything well, like that, I'm still the butt monkey. No one let me know this. I, if I would have known this, I would have been stepping up to bat on this one. Well... You know, Jen, I, I'll, I'll just let you. I'll just let you take care of Greg. He needs to be brought down a couple of things. Nice, nice. Okay, and um, but um, at the end of the day, and that radio play was terrific. And if she's listening right now, I'd like to throw out a public thanks to Susan Leonard, who's the reason I was able to make it there at all. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, she. Yeah, awesome. She came. She was my uh, my sugar mama for the con too. So mm-hmm. we love you, Susan. She's good people. Yeah, and uh, there's. Go ahead, Greg. Is, are there any other questions left from anybody about this particular episode? Um, I w- 
sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Sam, go ahead and wrap wrap this one up. All right. Well, I have a little thing about the end. One of the things I really like is um, at the end of every episode, like how you have the Spider-Man logo play in, or at least his face, his face anyway, into the uh, like. I'm trying to think of how the word is like. I like how you have the uh, the his like mask kind of play into the scene. I loved at the end of this one how he had his um, face turn into like a rugby ball or a football, I guess, if you're American. I'm sorry, American fans. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm British, yeah, I mean, okay? That, it's rugby. Credit for me. that really goes to Vic Cook, um, who wanted, uh, I mean, not that I disagree with him, I totally agree, but wanted those little Steve Ditko-esque touches in the show, like ending on, you know, Spider-Man mask spotlight or Spider-Man mask football or something like that. Um, this was, uh, you know, in the same way that we would do the half mask sometimes to indicate that, um, you know, some ironic moment when people are trying to peep and just, you know, remind everyone, hey, he's actually Spider-Man. That was right out of the old comics. And and the, the radiating waves for his spider sense um, this was all sort of Ditko-esque touches that um, Vic put into the show um, that were just marvelous. And so, yeah, it became a signature of the show. But really, I think why that worked so well is because it just feels so Spider-Man because that's um, the kind of thing that, that Steve Ditko did when the book first launched. And I loved every one of those. Loved it. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that we're going to wrap the episode up there. Uh, Greg, I know you've got some books to talk about. Yes, I do. I do. I always do. I, I am pimping my novels as usual. Uh, <laughs> um, Reign of the Ghost and Spirits of Ash and Foam are the first two books in a nine-book series. They're both out now and available um, for purchase on Amazon or uh, any other bookstore website or you can go into any bookstore and if they don't literally have it on the shelf the day you happen to walk in they can order it for you at the front desk oh they're um, there at least in my area they're there that's good um and uh so i'm uh you know very proud of these two books um if you like my work on spider-man with teenagers and young justice and stuff like that this is a, a series about um uh, a 13-year-old girl, Rain Tasik, and her friends who live on a chain of Caribbean islands called the Ghosts or the Ghost Keys, and Rain discovers she has a mission, a quest, and the ability to see and talk to ghosts. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. Um, so if you like the kind of plotting and characters and story I've done on my animated series, I think you'll like these books as well. So I'm pimping them. Um, I'm also uh, pimping... Uh, Long Beach Comic Con. I'll be appearing at Long Beach Comic Con on Saturday, September 27th, doing another Gargoyles 20th anniversary panel plus panels on um, Young Justice, Reign of the Ghosts, and, of course, the spectacular Spider-Man. Um, we've got a lot of special guests for all those panels. Um, I am not allowed to announce them just yet soon. Um and, uh, but we have, these are big panels. These are, you know, this is a, these are panels, particularly the Young Justice and the Spider-Man panel, which are big enough that I'm a little nervous we'll outnumber the audience. Uh, oh, wow. We have, nice. special, we have a lot of special guests for both those panels, um, uh, and a handful for Gargoyles and a panel for Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ashton Foam as well. Um, and then finally, um, Last but not least, uh, I also want to pimp a little bit the premiere of Star Wars Rebels, which is coming out this fall. Um, they've already aired four shorts that we did, um, and uh, you know I think they turned out great. And can, you know, they're available online if you miss them on Disney XD. Um, but uh, I think you'll really like this new Star Wars television series, Star Wars Rebels. And Jen, anything to pimp? Um, actually, uh, our uh, my uh, comic is out. Uh, you can get the PDF of it at ironcircus.com. It's one of the in the anthology called Smut Peddler, the 2014 um, 
one. If you go to ironcircus.com and go into their shop, you'll see it. Um, and they just and have if the you're pe- over 18. And, oh, yes, and only if you're over 18. Um, uh, but it is... Uh, so, kids, don't steal, your, don't steal your parents' credit card to... yeah. Don't give um. them instructions on how to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, uh, me and my uh, good friend Gilly Hathaway um, did a, a little short erotic comic that we that is in there, and um, I am going to uh, be starting my own podcast next mo- month called Abaddon's Revenge, where we're going to be reviewing episodes of Supernatural together mm-hmm. from a female perspective, a very angry female perspective. I should probably oh, throw that in there. This is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm the good cop. <laughs> so, wow. I'm just so you can wow. perspective there. God. Wow. That's 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 kind of terrifying if you're the good yeah, cop. It is. Trust me, it is. I've known her for 17 years. It's <laughs> <laughs> Who's the bad cop? I gave, uh, my friend uh, Lynn Anderson. So uh, it's double Anderson trouble. Uh, and um, and it should be uh, she's 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 a very angry feminist so um, <laughs> so I'm I get to be the nice guy because you know <laughs> you have crushes on everyone in that show <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I really Wow. I'm going to kick your ass later, Zach. I'm kicking your ass. All right, okay. (laughs) Sam, do you got anything to pimp? Um, You can find me over on spideydoo.com as the... uh... No, I'm not going to do that. That's that's too self-referential. (laughs) <laughs> Sam is actually our graphics guy, so if you like the graphics that you see on our, on our, uh, both our band, he did, he helped do our banner, and he also does all the graphics for every one of our podcasts. So whether it be for Mayday Mondays or uh, Clone Saga Chronicles or this show, Spectacular Radio, uh, he does all of our graphics for us. So a big thank you to Mister Mister Sam. Well, it's, it's no, I think Gerard does the uh, the one to Mayday Monday, doesn't he? I don't want to take credit oh, for that's- Gerard. <laughs> That's that's right. Gerard does do the Mayday I Monday. I do one, all the work on Mayday Mondays. Gerard does nothing. He just he just makes uh. the episode. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, I'm not going to be mean. Um, and right. you can you can also hear my voice on the Kane segments if they're going to be there still. So hopefully I'll be there again. Oh. Yeah, hopefully, yeah, you'll be there again. See you around. All right, and we'll <laughs> see you and we'll see you all soon when we come back with uh, the Invisible Hand and hopefully a very special guest. Stay tuned. There you go. So, so then he gets in a second accident at the toll booth. I mean, worst chauffeur we ever had. I thought my dad was going to, like, you know, pop a vessel. Maybe the chauffeur wasn't the problem. 